Hey everyone, uh, this is Brian. I'm just popping in before the actual show. Um, this is the first episode we've released since uh, the Supreme Court ruling on the Dobbs case, which deprived people across this country um, of the federal right to an abortion to decide what to do with their own bodies. Um, I don't know how much it comes across. I think we were sort of in full-on distraction mode by the time we recorded um and also we are three cis dudes on this episode um but we want to take an opportunity to call out a few options for direct action uh that you can do right now specifically and i'm sure so many of you have heard this many times uh but please 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 donate to an abortion fund if you can uh planned parenthood is a great organization. They do great work. NARAL, same thing. They do not need your money. Abortion funds do, um, especially if you live in a state uh, like Colorado, say, that is surrounded by states where abortion is now mostly or entirely illegal. Um, basically, abortion funds help people who are pregnant get get abortions. They help them with travel. They help them with medical expenses. Um, and you can do that and can make an immediate impact in someone's life right now. Um, there's also, if you've seen, if you've been on Instagram, you may have seen me share this. Um, I personally am uh, putting together a bake sale uh, that will, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, where all the money will go to, well, you'll donate on your own and then send me a screenshot. Um and I'll send you some baked goods. Um, menu and more details are available on our Instagram, uh, just revisionist underscore podcast. Um, and, you know, we are we are a comedy podcast first and foremost. Um, but, you know, I we, we started this podcast because uh, me, I especially am obsessed with with history i'm i i love it um and there is i think a tendency to see ourselves as separate from history um and i think this is one of those moments where it is abundantly clear that that's not true sorry my computer is beeping in the background i don't know what's going on um but right now these are these are the moments in history where people in the future look back and talk about how yes how we got here yes what happened but also how people met that moment and we we have a choice in how we do that um, there are many more of us than there are of them, um, regardless of whether you feel personally you would ever get an abortion if you, you know, have a uterus, um, regardless of whatever religious or cultural background you have that informs your personal beliefs, um, it's not right to make anyone else abide by your personal beliefs and if you disagree with that 
you are not fit to participate in a democracy. Um, and it's simple as that. Um, so we're going to fight. And we have to. We have to fight for people to be able to control their bodies. We have to fight to be able to not get shot when we're out wandering around in public. We have to fight for the right for a, a democracy where everyone can vote um, and trust that their vote will not be discounted um, because of the color of their skin um, or the zip code in which they live. Um, we have to fight for a world with a livable climate. Um, and it's a lot. It's a lot. But we have to fight. Because what else are we going to do? Yeah, um, I'm going to include links to um, my personal favorite abortion fund, which is Cobalt here in Colorado. Um, that is also lobbying to include the right to an abortion in the state constitution, um, which will make it harder to overturn. Um, also going to include the national network. Um, also, you can Google your area plus abortion fund and um, find somewhere close to you that is doing this work. And, you know, I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to speak for Zach. Um, I, I know we agree on this. Um, and sorry, this is just a collection of my thoughts now, but we need to react today and tomorrow the same way we did on January 6th. Because that was the physical coup. That was the martial coup, in a way. Um, but the coup has been going on for a long time. What do you call sort of this level of minority government other than that? What do you call, you know, in Missouri where voters at the polls said that they wanted to expand Medicaid of like, what was that? Four years ago. And a Republican controlled state legislature keeps trying to block that. What do you call a body of unelected, unaccountable justices using no solid legal reasoning that any scholar can, <laughs> can penetrate to Whatever they're trying to do, shore up their base, appeal, throw red meat to to a certain group of people, you know, make sure that primary voters turn out for their party. I believe wholeheartedly that most of them are just cynical and don't believe in much of anything. Um, and the fact that they are willing to deprive people of their bodily autonomy is terrifying and infuriating and <clears throat> yeah we have to fight this and we're going to fight this i don't know how that fight will go i don't know when it will end i believe that we will win eventually and i hope it's soon i hope my daughter can benefit from a world in which we've won um, yeah. Anyway, this is a comedy show. 
I said that, right? I said that up top. So we're going to, this is a very silly episode. I, I hope you enjoy it. I hope it brings you a little bit of relief right now. And I hope that whatever you're doing, you're doing it with the goal of bringing some positivity into the world, helping people who need it, and fighting for the people who are being oppressed. Um, Yeah. Thank you. July 9th, 1850. U.S. President Zachary Taylor dies after eating raw fruit and iced milk, which is why today we only eat deep fried fruit and pipe and hot milk. Welcome to The Revisionist. I'm Brian Flynn. I am Zach Powers. Hi, uh, I'm Steve Vanderbilt. Can I say something real quick? <laughs> sure. I mean, you're you you're already underway. Go for it. It's uh, it's also National Dimples Day. Happy, oh, happy, yeah! Happy National Dimples Day. Great. I don't have. I don't think. Yeah, I don't really have any. What did what, so. what did you get me for it? Uh, I got you some dimples. Oh, thank you. Oh, <laughs> yeah. uh, well, you know, you know, it's it's a holiday that we celebrate here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know why dimple. When's when's the day for non-dimpled people, huh? Well, they get three hundred sixty-four days. Three hundred sixty-four fucking days, man. <laughs> that is not. I don't want to lean into. I don't want anyone to think. I think people with dimples are in any way oppressed. It's dimpleist. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Um, welcome, Steve Vanderplug, back to the show. Also, hey, oh, yes. good to be back. Yeah. Been so long. Yeah. 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 Are you laying uh, on the floor or are you up against the wall? I, I had to move because there's going to be like noises in the other room soon. Oh, yeah, so yeah, Steve lost a lot on the NFT market. He's right. he's sleeping on the floor. That's Hard right. times I, in the Valenda. I invested in a, a, a different colored Shiba Inu and everybody's pissed at me. So. <laughs> that is maybe the best articulation of the NFT market I've heard yet. <laughs> um listeners well, uh sorry, yeah Zach, we're back ahead. we're continuing uh closing out pretty quick our uh run on con artists and we did save the the best uh for for this episode perhaps but um before we do that uh we have the results from our curtis how curtis how springer the founder of zizix episode <laughs> um and ultimately, the actual history uh, of uh, of that uh, that crazy guy who created a weird little foundation, a little spa in the desert that would cure all that ails you. Uh, that that one out in the end, um, but not gonna, actually like, cure all that ails you because it's not. There's it was no a medicine. scam. Yeah, yeah. Might have been by the fact that this is our con artist run. You might have determined that it was not true. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, actual history one on that one. But today, who boy, we're talking about uh, the Silver Tuna con artist, the real, the real <laughs> top tier. <laughs> so it's a strong stranglehold, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. One L. Ron Hubbard, Lafayette Ron Hubbard is our, is our uh, topic today. 
Yes, that is correct. Um, listeners, I will say um, that we had some technical kerfuffles getting the episode set up. Uh, we recently moved to a new house and what I thought would be a good studio space has shitty Wi-Fi. Um, hmm. And now my notes are A, on my phone and half deleted. So we're going to just do the best we can. Um, That's all right. I know a lot about L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 know, I know a little bit about uh, the man as well. Uh, mm-hmm. I know Steve has a heart out, so I don't know if he'll be here for the whole episode, but we'll see what we can do. Oh, yeah, we'll see when that uh, when that uh, comes up. We'll, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll deal with that. Um, listeners, also, um, what we typically do each episode, did we give the introduction for what we do on the show? Oh, yeah, I didn't do that. Uh, yeah, this is a comedy history podcast. Uh, every episode we have a guest on... Uh, one of us tells the true history of a person or event, uh, and then somebody else tells a alternate history that can be literally whatever they choose. Um, it can be as batshit and crazy as they like. And uh, then at the end, we vote on what becomes the true history of the world going forward. Yes. Awesome. Um, we are a little discombobulated because the world is fucked right now. Uh Specifically America, which is not the whole world. I'll give you that. Um, but let's 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 dive into a simpler, more wholesome time by talking about L. Ron Hubbard. Um, Lafayette Ron Hubbard uh, was born in 1911 yeah. um, to a father who was in the U.S. Navy, and um, uh, his mother worked for the government and uh because his dad did work for the navy they moved around a lot um and uh this this will tell you the kind of kid hubbard was um he he was he was the kid who was super into boy scouts uh which i think we we all knew one or two of those i'm sure um he he's made yeah he's a, he's a fucking narc yeah <laughs> Um, he made Eagle Scout, uh, two weeks after his 13th birthday, which is just like, like narcs don't even hang out with that kid. Like, yeah, that's, the- uh, that's like so young for an Eagle Scout too. Yeah. I think yeah. it was easier in those days to make Eagle Scout than it is like, than it was mm-hmm. later. Yeah. It's yeah, basically like, <laughs> it's student, it's student debt basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. <laughs> Um, so Hubbard, uh, at one point his father was posted to Guam, um, and Hubbard got to travel around to China and Japan, and he kept diaries from this period, which contained numerous racial slurs and described the, uh, criticized the Chinese and Japanese people for being poor, um, yeah, he said that he saw the Great Wall of China and his main takeaway was there should be a roller coaster on it. <laughs> <laughs> he basically was kicked out of high school for having bad grades, um, which would be a sort of thing that uh, was a running theme in his life. Though he did, he did write a little bit for the school paper. Um, then enrolled at 
Uh, no, sorry. Then he took an entrance examination for the Naval Academy and failed it. Uh, then he enrolled in a special prep school in Virginia to get ready to retake the test. Um, and then like he started complaining about like eye strain when he was in school and he was diagnosed with uh, nearsightedness, which disqualified him from the Naval Academy. Later as an adult, he would write in one of his diaries, quote, your eyes are getting progressively better. They became bad when you used them as an excuse to escape the Naval Academy. Um, which is just not, the timeline of that does not really work. But um, anyway, he was, uh, he then went to a place called the Woodward School for Boys, um, which is a school where they teach you how to be a boy. Um, it's hard to learn. Yeah. Especially in Boy Scouts. They don't teach you how to be a boy. No, they just boy teach you how to scout for boys. Yeah. <laughs> got to look for Boy Scat, Boy Prince, uh, Boy Bait, which is, I assume, what? Nacho Cheese Doritos? Um, well, there is a joke to be made about the, uh, the not-so-savory <laughs> history of Boy Scout troop leaders, but uh, I will hold off. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, anyway, the, uh, Hubbard eventually began studying uh, civil engineering at George Washington University uh, because his dad wanted him to. And he, again, fucking, he was not good at school. Um, he failed a bunch of courses, including uh, atomic physics, this despite the fact that he would later on tell people he was a, um, a nuclear scientist. Yeah, some um, of this is dubious. Uh, he said he failed the topic physics. It was also 1930, so I'm not entirely sure that class existed. <laughs> I mean, they definitely knew about atoms then. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know like how long the class was. If it was like a six-week, one-credit course, like, like we had like a wine-tasting class at mm -hmm. Metro. So I think it may have been the same level of rigor there. Mm -hmm. During what would be his final semester, he organized a trip to the uh, Caribbean, just a cruise, because he wanted to like film pirate strongholds. And also, um, quote, collect whatever one collects for exhibits in museums, which is <laughs> great. I love that that's one of my favorite quotes from this sick man um yeah with with indiana jones it's it belongs in a museum with l ron hubbard it's it belongs in a museum, museum. <laughs> 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 um so there were the trip ran into a lot of trouble um again this will be a recurring theme the owners of the boat demanded he return to baltimore he did and he just stopped showing up for university classes um, his father volunteered him for a Red Cross relief effort in Puerto Rico. Um, but while he was on the way there, he just decided to peace out. And he went with a stranger to, like, look for gold. Just look for conquistador gold. Yeah. Abandoned the Red Cross and was like, I guess we'll go try to find gold. <laughs> um, there's so many things in his life. 
one of the things I should have said this up top as a big caveat, when you Google L. Ron Hubbard, like looking for biographical notes, other than like his Wikipedia page and like one or two other things, everything on the front page of Google is a domain that's owned by the Church of Scientology. Um, so you have to kind of dig to get anything that is not <laughs> written by the Church of Scientology. There are there are books about him. There's a book yeah. called The Barefaced Messiah that's like mm-hmm. a, um, a non-Scientology uh, yes. account of his life. I've read Going Clear by uh, Lawrence Wright also, which is very good, but that is less of a biography of him and more about Scientology as a whole. Yeah. Um, I watched that documentary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, Hubbard returned to the Washington, D.C. area in February 1933, uh, where he met and fell in love with a fellow uh, glider piloting enthusiast named, uh, and this seems real, uh, Polly Grubb. So he and Polly Grubb got married like two months later in April. Um, They had a couple children, uh, one of whom was uh, Lafayette Ronald Hubbard Jr., who they called Nibs. Um, The couple- Yes, yes. Uh, they were pretty much short of money. Hubbard started had started writing in high school. And around this time, he started selling stories to like pulp magazines. A lot of them were science fiction, fantasy, but he also did uh, Westerns, adventure stories, um, you know, a bunch of different genres. He wrote under pen names like uh, Rene Lafayette, Kurt Von Rochen, Joe Blitz. Mm-hmm. Legionnaire 148 and Winchester Remington Colt. Yeah, that was a good one. Uh, yeah, that's that one's my favorite. Um, just three guns. <laughs> this as okay, pulling pulling back the kimono a little bit. Uh, as someone who does write science fiction fantasy and has tried to and has submitted to journals, um this was wild to me because the going rate um, at the time was like one cent a word. And so um, for like his first six pieces or whatever, uh, or like I did the math on this, but it was on my other file for like a 5,000 word story. Um, he would, he would have gotten $500. Um which is, no, $50, excuse me. Um, but adjusted for inflation, that would have been like $1,200 today. Whoa. Um, whereas the going rate for a short story in like the best science fiction magazines today is 10 cents a word. And so a 50,000 word story that you submitted today would only be worth $500 as opposed to like the 1200 uh, he got paid then. So all the sources were like, oh, he wasn't making a lot of money. But part of me is like, he's making a fuckload of money for a sci-fi writer. Yeah. Anyway, 
they eventually moved to Washington. This is where my note. He wrote his first um, full-length novel in 1937 called Buckskin Brigades, um, which was sort of based on the fictional life story he wrote for himself that he was um, adopted by the Blackfoot Nation, um, mm-hmm. which was f- fucking wild. And this is where he begins his relationship with his longtime editor, John Campbell. Um, he also wrote the uh, script for a movie based on what, another one of his novels, The Secret of Treasure Island. Um, and he starts spending time... The Muppet movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Muppet movie by L. Ron yep. He wrote yeah. uh, Muppet Treasure Island starring Tim Curry. You didn't know that? <laughs> and Muppets Going Clear um, and Kermit Operating Phaeton. Um, <laughs> So the big, according to him, again, that's the big caveat with anything from his biography. Um, The big turning point in his life was in April, 1938. He undergoes like a dental procedure and he has a bad reaction to one of the drugs used. And according to him, he has a near-death experience that inspires him to compose a manuscript, which will never be published, um, called Excalibur, or The One Command. Um, A friend of his who read it um, later recalled that um, it discussed the one command humanity faced, which was to survive. Um, It also talked about the psychology of a lynch mob. There's not a lot of detail on it because it never got fucking published. there are some, uh, he had some claims about the book that we can go into a little later. Oh, yes. Oh, I'm about to, I'm about to dive into those. Um, he, he told friends that he thought the book would be somewhat more important and have a greater impact upon people than the Bible. Um, so he would, like, he sent telegrams out to different publishers telling him to, telling them to meet him at Penn Station in New York uh, where he would discuss it with them and just give it to whoever gave him the best offer. And no one, I don't know if anyone showed up or no, just no one bought it. Uh, but I, I love picturing him just waiting around at the train station and no one showing up. Would later, he would later tell people um, that whoever read Excalibur either went insane or committed suicide. And he said yeah. that the last time he had shown it to a publisher in New York, he walked into their office to find out what the reaction was. Uh, the publisher called for the reader. The reader came in with the manuscript, threw it on the table, and threw himself out the skyscraper window. <laughs> so, and I think he's interpreting that as a positive review, which <laughs> I, I wouldn't necessarily. He said if you read the book, it would eliminate all fear in your life. He told his longtime <laughs> publisher, Campbell, like, reading it would eliminate all fear and anxiety from your life. And his publisher, who was like his friend and everything was like, I never understood how that would cause you to commit suicide. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He did. um, The failure of the book, um, at least in the contemporary to the story, put him into a deep depression. Uh, He did tell his wife, again, Polly Grubb, (laughs) 
in a letter, <laughs> quote, um, I have high hopes of smashing my name into history so violently that it will take a legendary form, even if all books are destroyed. Um, that goal is the real goal, so far as I'm concerned, um, which is nuts. That's pretty um, fucking nuts, for sure. <laughs> that is yeah. not, even like Stephen King at his most coked out, never said anything remotely batshit yeah. as that. And you know what? He kind of did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, credit where credit is due. Um, side note, like the manuscript for Excalibur is now like, it's it's sort of like a olive oil Charizard to Scientologists. Um, in the early 50s, the church published an edition of Excalibur with like a gold binding and it came like locked like a diary uh for fifteen hundred dollars the equivalent of about seventeen hundred dollars or seventeen thousand dollars um today um and it said also um that it quote contains data not to be released during mr hubbard's stay on earth um whoa yeah uh, he has a fucked up trip to Alaska. Da, da, da. Um, he applies again in 1941 to join the Navy. Um, but this time he has a friend uh, who is a state representative for Washington State who just lets him like use his letterhead and write his own like letter of recommendation to the Navy where Hubbard writes about himself, quote, uh, he's one of the most brilliant men I've ever known. Uh, and so he gets into the Navy um, in July 1941, which is a hell of a time to get into the Navy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so he's sent for training as an intelligence officer. He, he's posted to the Philippines, or sorry, posted to Australia, um, waiting to be sent to the Philippines. Uh, but while he's in Australia, he's sent back to the U.S., with like with a note almost that says this officer is not satisfactory for independent duty assignment. He is garrulous and tries to give impressions of his importance. He also seems to think he has unusual ability in most times. Um, these characteristics indicate that he will require close supervision for satisfactory performance of any intelligence duty. He's posted in Massachusetts where he gets basically the same notes um, like where he's about to take over a gunship. He's like not suited for independent command. Do not let this person be in charge of anything. Um, but he does they, tell them that he like has experience on a destroyer, which he doesn't. He doesn't. And they they give him some degree of command over a ship. Yes, he takes over a submarine chaser, uh, which is posted to Portland, Oregon in 1943. Um, he, they like take their first cruise to San Diego and like five hours into the trip, Hubbard starts, he's becomes convinced that he's detected a Japanese submarine. Um, and so they spend the, almost the next three full days like trying to engage this submarine. Dropping depth charges and things. Yeah. yeah. Um, until they finally receive orders to return back to Oregon. Uh, where the commander, uh, his commander reports, 
uh, an analysis of all reports convinces me there was no submarine in the area and that Hubbard had mistaken, quote, a known magnetic deposit for an enemy sub. Um, which well, at least there is something there. <laughs> honestly, like, I could have done the same thing, I feel like. If yeah, I was no. on a boat called a submarine well, chaser and I had that little hat, I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to chase this fucking submarine. But would you drop hundreds of depth charges over several days? Hundreds, baby. <laughs> no, yeah, uh, get down there. Uh, kill them, fish. No, don't, don't do that. Um, the following month, still in charge of the same ship, uh, he unknowingly sailed it into Mexican waters and started doing like shooting practice um, off the Coronado Islands because A, he thought they were uninhabited. They were not. And he thought they belonged to the United States. They did not. Um, and so the Mexican government was like, hey, could you not? And he was stripped of command. A report said he was unsuitable for independent duties again. Um, and recommended that he be assigned to duty on a large vessel where he can be properly supervised. So after this, after he's reassigned, he starts reporting sick a lot, saying he has like ulcers, he has malaria, he has back pain, which I'm, malaria is your closer with that. You don't go from like malaria to back pain. Um, That's when I took, when I wanted a, a green card for my weed said hey i've got malaria and they're like that no <laughs> i got back pain. They're like, Here you go. That's what we take care take care of that yeah just mm. jump straight to ebola for the for the for the medical marijuana card and it's like <laughs> mm, okay two <laughs> steps down excuse me doctor i'm dead i need medical marijuana <laughs> <laughs> um he was admitted to the Navy hospital for three months. Um, years later, again, similar to the eyesight thing, he wrote to himself, your stomach trouble you used as an excuse to keep the Navy from punishing you. You are free of the Navy. <laughs> Which is a fucking just weird way to phrase that from a writer's perspective. He reported on another ship that he detected an attempt at sabotage where he found basically a Molotov cocktail in like storage. I couldn't find anything to follow this up to say like whether they de determined this was legitimate uh, or what. Um, I'm going to go with no. I'm going to go with no, but like it feels like I would have seen something. Um, so he then was going to school and in the Naval Reserve at this time um, he still complained of uh, headaches, rheumatism, uh, conjunctivitis, side pain, stomach aches, pains in his shoulders, arthritis, hemorrhoids. Um, an October uh, 1945 Naval Board found that Hubbard was, quote, considered physically qualified to perform duty ashore, preferably within the continental United States. Um, so he was transferred to inactive duty in February, 1946, but he stayed officially in the Navy um, until his book Dianetics was published um, in October, uh, 1950. I'm going to preface this by saying, I've been wanting to do an episode on this next gentleman we're about to introduce for a while. 
uh, probably next Halloween. Um, but he settles in Pasadena, which is not where his wife and children are living. Um, they didn't officially get divorced yet, uh, which is going to come up later. Uh, but at this point, Hubbard moves into the Pasadena mansion of a man named Jack Parsons, who is a rocket scientist and also super into the occult. Uh, he's a follower of Aleister Crowley. Um, he is the leader of a lodge of Crowley's magical order, the Ordo uh, Templi Orientis. Um, and so he does both rocket experiments and like occult like summoning experiments in his house. Um, so Hubbard, uh, you know, made friends with Parsons and then began also a sexual relationship with uh, Parsons' 21-year-old girlfriend. Uh, Hubbard at this point was in his mid-30s. Um, Sarah, uh, Betty Northrup. I don't know why Betty is a nickname for Sarah. Um, Parsons Parsons was super into like swinging and free love. Um, there are just so many qu quotes. Um, writing to Aleister Crowley about Hubbard, Parsons says, quote, although he has no formal training in magic, uh, he has an extraordinary amount of experience and understanding in the field. From some of his experiences, I deduce that he is in direct touch with some higher intelligence, possibly his guardian angel. He describes his angel as a beautiful winged woman with red hair, whom he calls the Empress, and who has guided him through his life and saved him many times. So, pretty normal. The two, Parsons and Hubbard begin collaborating on a summoning ritual called the Babylon Working, um, which is a sex magic ritual uh, intended to summon an incarnation of Babylon, uh, the supreme Thelemite goddess. Um, so over several nights, uh, 1946, um, they attempted to summon this elemental, this goddess. Um, where basically the ritual was Jack Parsons would masturbate into a circle um, and Hubbard would scan the astral plane for signs and visions. Well, he did that. Um, well, where I have quite like, this is the same oh, you room. have questions? Yeah, is this different rooms? <laughs> no, this what? is the same room, baby. Same room, yeah. Okay, yeah, I, that's, I guess that's that makes sense. Uh, I mean, my, my question is who, how do you determine who gets masturbation duty? <laughs> Who gets I mean, scanny duty and who gets masturbation duty? Like, how do you, how do you, how do you split that? Is it a coin flip? Is somebody more uh, <laughs> primed? I feel like Parsons is like, no, I don't have, to, I don't have the, the touch. I don't, I can't search as well as you okay, can. You're more in tune with the astral plane. I'm more in tune with <laughs> my dick. I'm just gonna uh, stay here and jerk it. <laughs> I like, ignore. That wasn't like part of the planned ritual. It just became the ritual. <laughs> yeah, no, they caught him. They caught Parsons masturbating. He was like, no, this is, I'm trying to summon Babylon. <laughs> and every time he would go to the bathroom by himself, he'd be like, gotta go summon Babylon. Um, 
<laughs> every t- Jack, every time you come back from summoning Babylon, you look you can't look anyone in the eyes. It's like don't don't talk about it. Don't, don't talk about it. Um, oh, it's not Babylon. My eyes are. That's why I always said Ron Hubbard couldn't see very well. <laughs> That's why he had yeah. that vision. Yeah, if you if you masturbate to a sex magic ritual to summon Babylon too often, you'll go blind. Um, <laughs> but then you could just do it till you need glasses. Um, anyway, so they Parsons and Hubbard believe that the elemental arrived a few days later in the form of um, a woman named Marjorie Cameron who agreed to participate in the sex magic rituals. Um, We will get into that in the Jack Parsons episode though. Um, So Parsons, Hubbard and Sarah slash Betty set up a formal like business, uh, which is you'll find out not a good idea with L. Ron Hubbard. and basically, L. Ron Hubbard steals Parsons' life savings, and he and uh, Parsons' girlfriend. The plan was Hubbard and Sarah would buy yachts in Miami, sail them back to Pasadena, and sell them for a profit. Um, and one so, thing about L. Ron is I, he just loves boats so much. He he's is, such a boat go, boat, a boat guy. Yeah. No, he's a boat goat for sure. Yeah. Um, he's just horny for boats. Um, and this is just a scam. Um, Parsons later said um, that he was basically shattered by Hubbard's actions. Um so Hubbard in 1946 married Sarah slash Betty. Well, he was still married to Polly Grubb. Um, it wasn't until like a year later that Polly learned that he remarried. Um, and so he was finally like, fine, you caught me. I'll give you a divorce and won't be doing a bigamy. So it was around this time that we start seeing like, the first real Scientology type writing from Hubbard. Um, He wrote a document called Affirmations uh, where he, they're just a series of statements about his like, his life, his sex life, his psychological life um, that were like almost a form of like self-hypnosis. So the, the thing, the quotes from earlier about the eye trouble and the stomach trouble were from the affirmations, but also he wrote, um, your foot was an alibi. The injury is no longer needed. Your hip is a pose. You have a sound hip. It never hurts. Your shoulder never hurts. Masturbation does not injure or make insane. Your parents were in error. Everyone masturbates. You can tell all the romantic tales you wish, but you know which ones were lies. You have enough real experience to make anecdotes forever. Stick to your true adventures. So, among other things. Um, at this point, uh, Hoffman, he, re- Hubbard, I've been doing that so much, getting ready for this episode. I've been calling him Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he requests uh, psychiatric help from the VA 
and this was when the VA actually did that sort of thing. <clears throat> um, in writing his request, he said, after trying and failing for two years to regain my equilibrium in civil life, I am utterly unable to approach anything like my own competence. He was then arrested for petty theft in San Luis Obispo, California, and ordered to pay a $25 fine, $282 in today's money, a lot of inflation. Uh, and this is about the point when Hubbard and Sarah moved to Georgia um, and he he starts working as like, he says, a lay practitioner in a psychiatric clinic. I think just an administrative assistant, not sure. And this is when he starts working on his book, Dianetics. He says he has discovered the cause and the cure of nervous tension. Um, he wrote to his friend, uh, Robert Heinlein, um, about Heinlein. Heinlein wrote an earlier book called Coventry um, about a, basically a, a utopian government that can cure criminals of violent personality traits. Uh, Hubbard told Heinlein, you didn't specify in your book what actual reformation took place in the society to make supermen. Got to thinking about it the other day. The system is Excalibur. Um, which, if that doesn't make sense to you, strap the fuck in, because the rest of this <laughs> is going to make less, even less sense, probably. Um, I mean, there was an Excalibur reference. Yes. Kind of yes. Take, you know? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Um, Hubbard, again, several, like, he wrote to, like, a bunch of professional medical organizations to try to sell his research to them, and none of them were interested. So he hooked back up with his editor, John Campbell, um, who he, Campbell had, like, a longstanding fascination with, like, psychokinetic powers, um, like, or psionics, um, and just like fringe psychologies. Um, and so they developed the therapy of diagnostics, uh, Dianetics, not diagnostics. Diagnostics is a real thing. <laughs> um, so they refined his Hubbard's Dianetic techniques, I guess, uh, and tested them on science fiction fans who were recruited by Campbell. The basic underlying principle of Dianetics, which would go on to form the basis, part of the basis of Scientology, was that people's brains record every experience in their lives. Um, and so bad experiences are stored as engrams in a reactive mind that could be triggered later in life, causing emotional and physical problems. And you can cure these problems by a process he called auditing. Um, which would be just like regressing to past experiences. And in doing so, blah, 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 you can be so-called cleared of these experiences and achieve like higher level function. Um, he said that people who be clear would have a perfectly functioning mind with an improved IQ and photographic memory. Yeah. Um, that people would be cured of pure, poor eyesight and the common cold, uh, which Hubbard thought were purely <laughs> psychosomatic. 
Has he not heard of COVID? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. If Hubbard was, I have not looked up what Scientology has said about COVID. And I, I kind of am curious now. Um, I'm sure they can cure it. Listeners, if you want to get those cookies on your computer for me, go ahead. Because I am not, I don't want those ads. Um, Well, to be fair, uh, I mean, Tom Cruise like went off famously during Mission Impossible 7 about people not following COVID protocols. And dude dude is is Scientologist as fuck. So that is true. true. Yeah, very true. Um, He announced Dianetics in um, Campbell's journal, Astounding Science Fiction. Uh, Campbell said in an editorial introduction, quote, its power is almost unbelievable. It proves the the mind not only can, but does rule the body completely. Um, They established the Hubbard Dianetic Research Foundation in New Jersey. Um, uh, Hubbard basically at this point He's not even writing anymore. He's doing Dianetics full-time because guess what? You have to pay to attend the lectures and you have to pay to be audited. Um, And so it gets like super popular in the early 50s. Um, Like the book was translated into like French, German, Japanese, um, sold tens of thousands of copies. There were 500 Dianetics auditing groups in the U.S., Um, the press and scientists didn't like it because it was not supported by evidence. Um, and so, you know, um, but like some famous sci-fi writers were on board. Aldous Huxley uh, received auditing, uh, Theodore Sturgeon, A.E. Van Vo- Voigt. Um, there were, Van Voigt later recalled, there it is, that he spent days doing basically nothing else but opening envelopes to pull out $500 checks in the 1950s from people who wanted to take the course to learn how to audit. Um, he Hubbard was seen just by people like taking money off the top. Um, like one of the, one of the uh, Dianex Foundation's employees showed that the books had a monthly income of $90,000, but only 20,000 of it was accounted for. And like Hubbard would be seen like taking money literally from like, I don't know if they had a safe or just like a bag with a dollar sign on it, but he'd be taking money out of it. Um, And he would travel around doing lectures and things like that. Uh, He was like super charismatic, um, which is, like, I've not really seen footage of him speaking. I don't doubt it for people to, for him to be able to say these things with a straight face. He gives a demonstration at the Shrine Auditorium in LA where he says, he brings someone up uh, who he says has gone clear. Uh, her name was Sonia Bianca. Um, and he says he, she now has a perfect photographic memory due to going clear. Uh, but during the demonstration, um, she failed to remember a single physics formula, despite being a physics major. And Hubbard turned his back, and she could not remember the color of his tie, um, which apparently, like, a large part of the audience got up and left at that point. <laughs> uh, a large part, and not 
all, which is wild. Um, <laughs> this is when sort of doubts start creeping in about Dianetics. Um, and so there were some, he never, he didn't have the sort of central control that would later become like his, the feature of Scientology. Um, Dianetics was much more like crowdsourced almost. And so people had these independent groups and ideas and they were fighting for control of it. Um, and so he was in super debt. Um, the, his marriage to Sarah collapsed. Um, he had begun a different affair uh, with his 20 year old public relations assistant. Um, and so he also, um, he denounced Sarah and Sarah's lover to the FBI as communists. Well, this uh, is important because uh, she, yeah, she met another Dianetics guy. Yes. Um, and the marriage started to fall through. And uh, his reaction wasn't just to denounce them as communists to the no. FBI. His reaction uh, during the divorce um, and the ensuing custody battle was to kidnap Sarah and his one-year-old daughter, Alexis. Um, and he tried to find a doctor to declare Sarah insane, uh, which After kidnapping her? After kidnapping her. Forcing her to come to the doctor? It was the uh, 50s, to be fair. Uh, so yeah. that seems almost plausible, given the state of medicine in the 50s. And he sent his uh, sent his little daughter to Cuba, where he just yes. had a string of strangers that he hired to watch his his daughter. People he didn't know at all. He was just like, "You take care of her while I'm dealing with this." He was pretty <laughs> trustworthy to me, you know. <laughs> um, in the divorce suit, Sarah um, accused, and this is, um, I should say, a warning for uh, violent physical abuse. Um, she accused him of burying her bigamously and subjecting her to sleep deprivation, kidnapping, which we discussed. Uh, he tried to convince her to kill herself um, and uh, physically assaulted and even strangled her. Um, and so Sarah got custody of Alexis by agreeing to a settlement uh, with Hubbard where she signed a public statement uh, that said, the things I've said about L. Ron Hubbard in courts and public prints have been grossly exaggerated or entirely false. I have not at any time believed otherwise than that L. Ron Hubbard is a fine and brilliant man. So you almost have to believe that her publicly talking about his abuse was more of an issue to him than custody of his daughter. So it was more important that he get her to sign the statement than anything else. So, but anyway, Dianetics is collapsing. Um, so blah, blah, blah. He marries an 18 year old staff member, Mary Sue Whip, um, and moves to Phoenix and establishes uh, the Hubbard Association of Scientologists International. Uh, and we are just getting to Scientology, Jesus Christ. Um, the, Dianetics is part of Scientology, but Dianetics is sort of like the study of how these negative engrams, whatever, affect the brain. And Scientology is sort of about studying how like 
the brain and the spirit and stuff relate to quote itself universes and other life um so he publishes his quote discovery that man is most fundamentally a spiritual being called a thetan he was also basically doing this to reassert editorial control over his creation um there was a story that the author Harlan Ellison told of seeing Hubbard at like a gathering of a club complaining that he was not being paid enough as a writer and that someone else told Hubbard that what he needed to do to get rich was to start a religion. Um, and that quote is attributed to Hubbard like at multiple different stages. Um, so who knows when it actually really happened. Um, but basically his whole doctrine he came up with was that the person is a Thetan, an immortal, immortal, omniscient, and potentially omnipotent entity um, that Thetans created the universe and forgot their godlike powers and became trapped in physical bodies. Um, basically, the goal of Scientology was to rehabilitate each person's Thetan to restore its original capacities. Um, he wrote a bunch of other, a lot of his other books from this point on are basically like D&D supplementals, but for Scientology. Um, he wrote a book called A History of Man, which he called A Cold-Blooded and Factual Account of Your Last 60 Trillion Years. <laughs> and another book called Scientology 8-8008, uh, where he says, quote, with this book, the ability to make one's body old or young at will the ability to heal the ill without physical contact, the ability to cure the insane and the incapacitated is set forth for the physician, the layman, the mathematician, and the physicist. Scientology is basically like, it's organized. The comparison I've seen used is like a fast food chain where there's different franchises, but they are all like centrally controlled. Um, Talk about KFC Pizza Hut. Yes, yes. It's, yeah, where one is Sea Org, one is fucking the Guardians, and the other is just a regular old Church of Scientology. Yeah, um, yeah. He starts giving a bunch of lectures, and it doesn't have the same initial success as Dianetics did. Um, but eventually he has some more children. He gets a degree from an unaccredited degree mill, so he gives himself a doctorate, because why not at that point? Um, and starts calling himself Dr. Hubbard. And he sets up a chain of spiritual guidance centers that would charge customers $500 for 24 hours of auditing. And this is when Scientology first starts turning into a religion, more or less. Um, Hubbard incorporates the Church of Scientology, Church of American Science, and the Church of Spiritual Engineering a few years later, he says to Scientologists, quote, if attacked on some vulnerable point by anyone or anything or any organization, always find or manufacture enough threat against them to cause them to sue for peace. Don't defend, always attack. And so it keeps growing throughout the 50s pretty steadily. Meanwhile, like the medical claims of Scientology keep growing, like, and like he's starting to do even more dubious shit, like attracting polio sufferers by presenting the church as 
a scientific research foundation investigating polio. Um, yeah, he tries to like uh, one of his uh, attempts is like uh, he creates this speed cocktail and he says, you got to take this every two hours for 24 hours. And it's this absolutely insane, like huge vitamin supplement mixed with basically speed. The people are just taking a lot like some people died i believe taking this thing and uh yeah it's just just got stronger though you know (laughs) (laughs) um he has a bunch more kids and he starts buying mansions um he is basically and people are starting to realize this is a cult um and he's starting to be investigated by the U.S. government, the Australian government. Um, He starts introducing security checks to identify what he called suppressive persons, uh, which were basically people who didn't like Scientology. Um, And so they would ask a bunch of questions at these security checks, including, have you ever practiced homosexuality? And have you had unkind thoughts about L. Ron Hubbard? Um, And then like, they escalated to even asking questions about like what Scientologists have done in their past lives, um, including questions like, have you ever destroyed a culture? Uh, Did you come to earth for evil purposes? And my personal favorite, have you ever zapped anyone? (laughs) Um, Which is, I hope it came with as little context as it did for me. Um, the FBI described him as a mental case. The FDA took action against Scientology. Uh, they were s- selling pills that they labeled as radiation cures. Um, and so Scientology was banned in uh, the states of Victoria, Western Australia, and South Australia. Um, covered he was looking for basically like a safe haven for Scientology, almost like uh, say Guiana was for the people's temple to make a comparison. Um, He ends up traveling to Rhodesia, which is today Zimbabwe, but at the time was ruled by a violent white minority um, and looked to setting up a, a base there. He even like tried to curry favor with Ian Smith, who was, the prime minister um, and not a good dude. Um, But even they kicked him out. Um, He started requiring Scientology members to disconnect from like family members he felt were suppressive. Um, And so he introduced a policy of fair game, uh, which was applicable to anyone he decided was an enemy of Scientology that they, quote, may be deprived of property or injured by any means by any Scientologist without any discipline of the Scientologist. They may be tricked, sued, or lied to, or destroyed. This is when they open the Guardian's office, which intersects with our previous episode on Operation Snow White, which we've gotten into. This is when he creates the Sea Org, which is the point where he just starts floating around the world on a bunch of yachts. Yeah, he just kind of spends several years going from port to port, often getting kicked out by local governments. 
Uh, yeah, because he's doing yeah, shady he's, shit. He's, yeah, he's got a game on all the locals. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's got a bunch of people on these boats. He's got their passports locked up in vaults. He um, sometimes sends them on expeditions to find gold he buried in past lives. Um, yep. And then uh, he starts at a certain point, like there's a three year period where they never stay anywhere more than six weeks because he's so paranoid about all the governments coming to get them. And at a certain point, he just starts throwing people overboard regularly, which is his favorite punishment. And he seems to get a lot of joy out of just throwing even middle-aged and elderly people overboard as a, as a form of punishment. Truly like a wild, wild man. And he um, even has uh, a little legion of little girls who are his messengers. Yeah. Yeah, that is, yeah, there's a lot that is. I couldn't find anything that confirmed like my worst fears about that, but I, I would, there's even, yeah, I've listened to like a few things on him. And, and one of the things that is astounding is there is no evidence that he ever was actually like a sexual assaultist or a pedophile or a rapist. Like there is, that does not, there is no evidence of that about, about him. He's obviously a person who did a lot of horrible things, but that is not yes. uh, verified. Um, so it's at this point while they're floating around that he starts releasing the OT levels, um, which as you spend more and more money in Scientology, uh, you basically attain a higher level and get access to all these secrets. Uh, For example, OT3, uh, which is called the Wall of Fire, uh, which is about uh, a disaster that occurred quote, on this planet and on the other 75 planets which formed this confederacy 75 million years ago. That's when uh, Scientologists would learn about galactic leader Xenu uh, and how he had shipped billions of people to Earth and blown them up with hydrogen bombs. Um, And then their traumatized spirits were stuck together at implant stations and brainwashed uh, with false memories and eventually became contained within human beings. Um, Hubbard said that when he discovered OT3, um, it took a major physical toll on him, that he had broken a knee, an arm, and his back during the course of his research. Um, He then unveiled levels four through six, which had to have fucked him up. It's around this time that a bunch of like actual, like, criminal and civil cases are starting to pile up against him in like France, the U S he left the Sea Org fleet and was living undercover in Queens. He told like, he later told Scientologists, not that he was in hiding, but quote, that he was conducting a sociological study in around New York city. Um, His health's really starting to decline. He's a chain smoker He has, like, he was in a motorcycle accident. He had a heart attack. There was some suspicion also, and I don't know how this arose, but in some European countries, people began to suspect that Scientology was a CIA operation, which led to a riot in Portugal. Um, And, like, his yacht, the Apollo, was... um, banned from docking there 
And the band made up of Sea Org members called the Apollo Stars uh, was banned from performing. Scientology tries to take over the town of Clearwater, Florida to establish a permanent land base. Um, it, they're sort of discovered early and run out of town. That I am, I am desperately trying to condense this because we are so far into this fucking episode. Um, yeah. And so there's the Operation Snow White case, uh, Operation Freakout, which we talked about in that episode. It's around this time that he writes Battlefield Earth uh, when he's living in an RV. Um, he also releases a few music albums, called, one called Space Jazz, um, <laughs> which I, I gotta fucking hear. I have to hear Space Jazz. Um, oh, you know, is it, I already know what it is. <laughs> is it a better name for Space Jazz than George Lucas's submission of Jizz? It absolutely <laughs> is. It, it's one of the only things that L. Ron Hubbard got right was not calling it jizz music like George Lucas. <laughs> Hubbard's pretty absent at this time and there's a sort of semi-coup within Scientology uh, where a bunch of Sea Org members led by a man named David Miscavige uh, take over the church in his absence. Um, and Mary Sue Hubbard is like made to resign her position, but their daughter, Suzette, uh, is made to become Miscavige's personal maid. Um, Miscavige also, we won't really get into because this is an L. Ron Hubbard focus episode. Miscavige is a piece of shit himself. Uh, his wife has been missing for decades. Um, no one knows where she is. Um, it's presumed that he did murder her um, or he is, it's not out of the realm of possibility of Scientology that he is keeping her like imprisoned. Um, Hubbard spends the last couple of years of his life living in a motorhome, um, in basically deep hiding and quote, writing and researching, still trying to manage Church of Scientology in what capacity he can. Um, he, he receives a huge amount of money even at this point. Um, up through 1982, he had raked in at least $200 million through Scientology. Anyway, January 1986, he suffers a stroke and uh, dies a week later. Uh, his body was cremated and ashes were scattered at sea. And Scientology leaders announced that his body had become, quote, an impediment to his work and that he had decided to drop his body uh, to continue his research on another planet, quote, having learned to do it without a body. Um, yeah. There's so much more, but I'm just going to stop there. <laughs> My throat hurts. I'm going to stop there. Uh, that is the, a crumb of the actual history of L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> 